This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Are you curious about unschooling? Do you want to know what unschooling looks like? Then visit our other website, unschoolingdads.com. There you will find interviews and testimonials by many unschooling dads. You may also download the book, Unschooling Dads, for free, or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around, to schedule Go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It's November 29th. We're going to answer some questions from Cora. These are all on politics. Well, political systems in government, I should say. One is on libertarianism as an ideology. All right, here is the first one. Why are you against communism? All right, I don't know that I'm totally against communism. There, there's a few different things that people mean by communism. And I guess we can call these big C communism, the type that's imposed by the state, and little c communism, the types that people choose for themselves to live under and to be organized by as far as their uh, property is concerned. It might be more accurate to say that the uh, small c communism, the uh, communes, communal living, intentional living, these types of things that people choose to organize around for themselves would more accurately, more accurately be called communalism. I'm okay with that. But I think there are a lot of people who use the word communism, and that's what they want to do. Where it becomes a problem for me is when that impulse, that desire to live communally, right, to share all your property, is when that is being forced on unwilling participants, right? That's when communism becomes authoritarianism, and it becomes incredibly offensive. And people like to, people on the, I guess we could say, uh, left, left anarchist side, the anarcho-communists, syndicalists, socialists, whatever, like to make the argument that if a scarce resource is currently unowned, then it should be regarded as owned by everybody. So if somebody comes along and appropriates it, puts up a fence, digs it up, builds a house on it, starts to uh, plant a garden, right? Starts to plant crops or get some livestock and puts it on there and they begin grazing, you know, establishing it as theirs. 
then that is stealing it from everybody else, and therefore doing that is an act of aggression, which may be responded to with force, according to the non-aggression principle, right? Now, the mistake they make is that unowned or virgin resources should be, right, here's, here's the problem, should be considered under some, some sort of common ownership by everybody else on the planet. And I've never heard of a justification for that should be considered as under common ownership by everybody else. That, that, that to me is an irrational should be. Okay, there's, there's no reason other than some people might want it that way that that should be so. Instead, if we respect that it doesn't, it, it doesn't belong to anybody until somebody appropriates it, right? If we respect original appropriation, uh, first comer appropriation, then we can establish a way to know which scarce resources belong to who and when may force be justifiably use, used in their defense, right? And, and the reason we do this Right. The reason we establish property rights, it, well, there's a number of reasons, I guess. The first should be to minimize conflict between people. If it's, if it's clear and obvious in an objective way, who was the first to appropriate a given scarce resource out of its unowned or virgin status, then that's, then that's clear and obvious. We know who has that first claim. Now, it's up to us, it's up to everybody else if we want to assign that person, that original appropriator, that homesteader, we want to assign to them ownership rights, right? The status of owner, the condition of ownership over that scarce resource, right? What's the alternative, right? This is, this is a question of alternatives. The alternative is we don't assign and we don't, we don't assign ownership and we don't respect the ownership of the homesteader. And so anybody coming after, any latecomer, as they're called, can or should be able to or should be allowed to or may justifiably reappropriate or expropriate that scarce resource from the original homesteader, right? Is that the system of ownership that we want? Will that system of ownership reduce conflict over scarce resources? Will that system of ownership provide stability for what will later become uh, social cooperation through markets, right? If, if nobody can own anything, how, how would markets ever develop? And maybe you say, well, I don't like markets. Markets are the problem. You can say that, but markets seem to always develop wherever humans are, right? Because not everybody has exactly what they want at any given period of time and are totally satisfied. You know, nev never to have a change of, of feeling, of attitude about their particular current state of affairs. People decide they want, they want something different. They want to make a change. And often that means approaching somebody else and saying, you've got something I want. Take a look what I got. Maybe we can make a trade. And thus markets are born, right? And this just evolves from there. So if we don't have original appropriation based ownership then we can never establish a we can never establish the convention the custom of property rights and we can never establish stability right we can never establish peace or stability among people and then markets can never get going and therefore civilization can never rise up
Now, if you've been listening to me for a while, you'll probably say, well, Skylar, don't you dislike civilization? Don't you say that the agricultural revolution, which was a, which was a major, major shift in that process of developing civilization, don't you say that was a big mistake? And I do say that. And I say that for particular reasons, and it, it's mostly a, a, a question of human health, physical health and mental health. I think both of those things took serious dive bombs among humanity after the agricultural revolution. I think we were better off. I think we were happier. I think that we were uh, fitter when we were living as small hunter-gatherer tribes. That doesn't mean that, that you know, I, I view that period as some sort of utopia. I, I guess in many ways, in many ways that I do. <laughs> Obviously, there were, there were issues, right? Accidents would happen and people would, would die more often than not because, you know, we didn't have, we hadn't developed or learned more about how to um, deal with disease, deal with accidents, deal with, you know, in many cases, deal with each other as far as, um, tribes that may have animosity toward one another. And maybe, I don't know how common it was, but maybe there would be um, small-scale wars that would happen. You know, war happens today, so that, that I guess, doesn't change. But yeah, in many ways, I think it was a mistake. I think humanity was better off. Would I trade today for then? I don't know. I'd have to experience it. I'd have to, like, maybe be stuck somewhere with hunter-gatherers and live there for a year to sort of recondition myself to adapt. And then I could say, do I want to go back? Do I want to go back to all the tech and all the all the pollution and all the strife and all the politics and all the this, 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 and that? Honestly, I could see myself saying, no, I don't want to go back to that. I would rather stay here and, and continue living this way. And, you know, hunter-gatherers were very communal, right? They were very egalitarian. Um, but for the most part, politically at least, it was not authoritarian. I mean, obviously... People were born into the system and they learned these ways and they were raised under these norms and conventions and they adopted them as adults. I'm fine with all of that, right? If that's what communism is, then hey, I'm a commie. But people make the mistake of taking that idea and wanting it to, wanting to use the political system in which they're under to force it on everybody. That's when it becomes dangerous and deadly, right? That's when we say we're going to stop ignoring the claims you know, property rights, the claims of ownership based on original appropriation and self-ownership, right? The original appropriation of our own bodies. And we're going to give that authority to someone else. And that that can't turn out well. Uh, and, it, and it does start with our bodies, right? It starts with the idea of self-ownership. I mean, what, what is that even, where does that even come from? Well, it comes from two places. Number one, we are the first inhabitants of our body. So it makes sense that we should be considered its owner. And two, we are, um, so we, we possess it, right? We are in control of it. And, and two, we also happen to be the first. So you put those together and it's pretty obvious to me that the, the best way to deal with people is as self-owners. Uh, but, but establishing communism through the political system, through government, through the state, can't be satisfied with that because people don't, don't want to do what other people want them to do all the time. People have their own ideas about finding happiness, living the good life, finding fulfillment, finding contentment, and so on and so forth. They don't want to just follow somebody else's orders. And so those people need to be disappeared, right? The people who aren't the true believers 
And even the true, many of the true believers begin to, at some point, see that something wrong is happening, some corruption is happening, right? More and more excuses are being made to disappear people they know who they also believed were true believers, but maybe not quite. And very often, people who are its biggest supporters at the at the beginning end up getting disappeared when it goes too far because they become they get that line moves so far left, we'll say, uh, that they get, you know, they, they, their loyalty is tested and the people in power can see that. And so they're taken out. You see a bit of microcosm with this, with this type of thing. When you look at, um, how the left side of politics today, right? There's the radical left, the identity politics, the woke left, and the people that get, um, the people that are getting, uh, attacked by them the worst or getting canceled are typically other people on the left, right? They're just not left enough. They haven't totally rejected, you know, like free speech or totally accepted the woke ideology, but they're otherwise leftists. They're otherwise Democrats and they have been for a very long time, but they're getting canceled. They're getting attacked in this social way because they're not following the left in that direction. They're stopping. Right, they're hitting a, a line that a line of tolerance, and they're not willing to cross it. And it's not just that they're not willing to cross it, but they they decide to become vocal about the mistake that is crossing that line. So this is kind of an example of why people who are originally true believers in something like communism at the beginning end up getting killed because the government, as it's moving in that direction, it's becoming more brutal and more authoritarian because most people aren't doing. What the people in power, the people who are putting in the system, want people to do with themselves, with their bodies, and with what they consider to be their property. And so they become more brutal and more murderous. And there's people who originally believed in it, ideologically see that, and they say, look, you're crossing lines here. We're not willing to go with you. And then, and then, it, and then it comes to them. All right. I spent a really long time on that question. <laughs> um. I don't think I told you how many questions I had. I had four. I just I just deleted one off the end because I spent so much time on that first one. All right, here's the next one. What is the role of government in the modern economic system? I don't think that the role of government changes in any modern or uh, pre-modern economic system. The role of government, in my opinion, never changes. And the role of government is very simple. It's two things. It's two things, peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. And that's it, peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. That is the role of government in any economic system, pre-modern, modern, post-modern, whatever that means. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to government. I'm opposed to government taking roles upon itself that are not proper, right, that go beyond peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. If if the people who call themselves government go beyond these two functions, they are uh, they are behaving extra governmentally, and in most cases, they are behaving criminally. Because when you when you go beyond simple peacekeeping, you're probably initiating conflict. You're probably initiating aggression somewhere, and you're violating your role as peacekeeper. Right, you're creating conflict. You're creating disputes, which you're now 
trying to adjudicate disputes with yourself, you're now trying to adjudicate, right? So now you're no longer the impartial dispute adjudicator. You're now violating that rule. So when a government does anything extra governmental, it will violate its core purpose, its core role of peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. Now, it begs the question, if peacekeeping and dispute adjudication is the proper role of government, how can government maintain its monopoly? And the short answer is it can't, right? Doing so would be extra governmental because in order to maintain its monopoly, it would have to initiate force against all would-be competitors, right? So it can't do that. So if government sticks to its proper role, then it just becomes it just becomes one of a number of firms in society that are offering governmental services. And these firms may also offer other kinds of services. But as far as the government that it offers, those are peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. Anything else it offers, it's offering as just a provider of that type of service. It's not offering it as a government. So, you know, the question becomes, can a society have multiple firms within it offering governmental services? Well, that's that's the big argument that anarcho-capitalists and voluntarists and libertarian anarchists make, is that they can, is that society can. And there may be in one society, in one town, there may be there may be one offering these services, um, and it stays in business because the services it offers are agreeable and in demand by the people in that town. And it may be that it does it in such a way that it satisfies everybody, and, and any would-be competitors just simply can't get off the ground and get enough business to stay afloat in any given period of time because everybody, everybody likes the dominant firm. I wouldn't call that a monopoly because it's not being enforced, right? It's not, it doesn't exist as a matter of threatening force or violence against everybody else who would compete with that. It's just a, I guess what economists call natural monopolies. But there's always that, um, there's always that threat, if you will. I don't like that word. I think that's a, you know, that's a political word and I'm using it in, in, I'm using it in a market economic sense, a competitive sense. There's always a threat that some other firm will, you know, maybe an established firm someone else somewhere else will start a branch in this particular town or city and try to get in, right? That happens, right? We see that in all kinds of industries. Or some entrepreneurs trying to establish his own innovative type of firm offering these governmental services in a different kind of way. And he's trying to get off the ground and get established and get investors and get venture capital and, you know, who knows. But every time when, when, when the firms offering these governmental services, when they use um, what uh, violence they are capable of to go beyond these two functions, that's when they become, in my opinion, they become criminal. They've, they violate the proper role of government and they become criminal enterprises. Will that always happen? Right? Some people will say in any given society, you've got firms offer, offering governmental society, governmental services, and sooner or later, they will behave criminally and become a state, right? This is the argument that, that the radical minarchists will say, like Robert Nozick and I guess the objectivists, Ayn Rand and so forth, would, would argue that this will always happen. You know, I don't think so. 
but I can see it happening. You know, who knows? Will we ever get there to find out? Probably not. (laughs) But it, it provides a basis on which we can judge the actions of current modern governments. What are they doing to us? Do they go beyond this proper role of simply peacekeeping and dispute adjudication? If they are, then they are criminal organizations. It it gives us a standard, right? That's why we talk about proper role. All right, let's go on to the final question. I'm probably not going to answer this totally in depth. I'll give a couple of of answers. This podcast is getting pretty long, so... Here's the question. What are some negative misconceptions about libertarianism that people should be aware of? I'm going to give three that I've heard that are totally wrong. They're totally have nothing to do with libertarianism proper. And the first one is that libertarians don't care about the poor and the needy, right? Because libertarians do not want the state to provide welfare services to people in need. It is argued that libertarians don't care about the poor and the needy. And it's just simply not true. I, as a libertarian, do care somewhat about the poor and the needy. I'm not out there like Mother Teresa living among them and serving them. So I obviously don't care that much. (laughs) And my guess is neither are you and neither is anybody you know. (laughs) Um, And people, people who make this argument probably don't either. And I think the reasons that, if I can read into this a bit, if I can make some, if I can make an asshole out of myself by making some assumptions, which I think are probably pretty good assumptions, pretty safe assumptions to make, the reason that they want to outsource this function of providing welfare to the poor and needy to the state is because they don't want to do it themselves. They want to outsource it, wash their hands of it, forget about it, move on with their lives, and feel good that somebody is there to take care of the the poor and the needy that they see. They see poor and needy. They don't have to feel bad that they're not doing anything about it because they because they support whether it actually exists or not. They support government getting involved in in giving them what they need. Right? So they can wash their hands and say I'm a good person. I don't need to actually help these people because I want the government to do it and either they are doing it to some degree and I want them to do more, so I'm a good person, or I'm maybe an activist, at least online, <laughs> in trying to get some kind of system passed, right? I, I, I go and I vote for the candidate who says they'll create it. I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm a voter, right? But just because libertarians don't want the state to provide it, and it doesn't mean that, that they don't care about the poor and needy. Whether or not a given a particular libertarian cares about the poor and needy, you know, really depends on what they do about the problem. Personally, I don't give, you know, once in a while somebody, look, I run into a lot of homeless people. Every day I'm in and out of my car, downtown, going into restaurants, crossing streets, this and this and that, and homeless people are everywhere. They're seemingly on every corner. And, you know, I'll even be standing in a restaurant and some guy will come in and he'll ask the restaurant if they can give him a meal. And one time that happened, I didn't know, I didn't know it was somebody who was trying to get a meal. I just thought it was a customer waiting for service and I was there to pick up food and there was, there was no host. There was nobody eating inside the restaurant because it's pretty much just delivery for a lot of places. So I thought he was, he was waiting to be served and I was waiting to get an update on the order I was waiting for. And I hadn't seen anybody yet since I got there. 
So I did the clever thing that I do, and I called the restaurant so that their front desk phone starts ringing. They hear it, and they come out of the back. I do that all the time. <laughs> and then I hang up, you know, hang up on them. And they don't, you know, they're none the wiser. And I say, oh, well, hey, by, by the way, this person came out. And I said, oh, hey, this guy is looking to be seated, and I'm looking for a Grubhub order. She says, okay, it's, it's not quite ready yet to me. And then to the other guy, she's like, you know, party of one. And then the guy's like, um, actually, I'm just wondering if you guys could give me a meal. Right. And the way he said it, you know, in that downtrodden type of way, she caught on rather quickly what this guy was asking for. Not just can I come in and buy a meal, but can you give me a free meal? And she starts, you know, I'm not the manager. I can't make that decision. I'll call the manager. He's not here, blah, 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 and, and leaves. And then me and this guy start chatting and he decides to tell me about his plight and how he got in the situation that he's in. And he's got relatively clean clothes and shoes and he, he looks okay. He's probably showered recently. And he's got a backpack and he's telling me about how he lost his he lost his CDL, his commercial driver's license, because of an accident that he didn't handle right. And he hasn't been able to find work ever since. You know, and we chatted and I kinda like had a human connection with him. And he only had three dollars, he said, and so I pulled out five dollars, I gave it to him and I said, Look, this money you now have is gonna go a lot further over there at the mall at McDonald's then it's going to go here in this fine Indian dining restaurant. You know what I mean? You, you might be able to buy one item here, whereas you go to McDonald's, you're going to be able to get a feast for eight bucks, right? So he said, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. But I knew he was going to wait for the girl to come back and give him the bad news that they can't give him a meal, which she did. And I said, you know, nice to meet you. And he left. But other than other than situations like that, I don't I don't give money to panhandlers. And it's not because... There's signs all over the city that say, don't give money to panhandlers. They have services. They know where to go. It's because I'd be broke. I see them every day everywhere because I'm out and about. So I just don't. It's just, I just don't do it. The way that I give money to people in need is I will hire them for a job. Okay, if I need something done, right, some, some kind of yard work done, I don't want to do a fence repair to this or that, I'll find people who need it, right, need the work, and I will hire them. In my opinion, that's the best way to give charity, especially to able-bodied people. Not everybody's able-bodied. Some people are just total invalids and they can't, they can't do anything for you. Should those people be taken care of? Yeah, I don't want to see them die. I don't really, unless I have a personal relationship with, with somebody like that, I, don't, I guess I don't really care. But that's not because I'm a libertarian. Uh, but that's the argument that's made. Because libertarians don't want the state to force everybody else to pay for these big, mostly ineffective, total waste of, of taxpayer money programs that end up simply creating dependency instead of actually helping anybody, that we must be, we must not like the poor and needy. So that's, that's false. The second thing would be that um, libertarians are greedy, right? That all libertarians are just, just rich, you know, super well-off white men that d don't want anybody else to get anything. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I guess by world standards, I am quite well off. I'm a one percenter, but so is most people in the U.S., right? So are most people in the U.S. By U.S. standards, I'm not. I am lower middle class. Am I greedy? Well, I want the things I want that I'm willing to work for, okay? I'm not greedy enough to want to just take other people's property, right? So that's, that's the big question. What is greed? And, you know, people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams and probably Milton Friedman Say, said things like, it's strange that people today regard as greedy wanting to keep your own stuff and not as greedy wanting to take other people's stuff in order to use it for 
you know, welfare purposes, I guess. Right. It's not greedy to want to take other people's things as long as you're going to use them for a good cause. <laughs> but it is greedy to want to simply keep what you've earned, what you've worked for or earned in whatever way you've earned it. But the libertarian argument goes further. It's not just that we don't want government to take our money and give it to poor people. Okay. And we think there's problems with that whole idea. But it's that we want government to get the hell out of the way so that poor people have more opportunities to escape their poverty. Government does not give anybody more choices, more opportunities than they would get if government just got out of the way. If government stuck to its proper role of peacekeeping and dispute adjudication, everything else, everything else will be handled by, quote, greedy, enterprising individuals look, looking to make a buck. And the opportunities will abound. And you see that, right? I mean, you can, you can stack up all the countries of the world from most economically free, most capitalist, if you will, most libertarian to the least, and then, and then count the number of opportunities on a per capita basis or whatever, right? You'll see that the most opportunities are found in those countries that have the least intrusive and least burdensome governments. The, the more rather than less, the more libertarian type governments. And by libertarian standards, very, I mean, <laughs> as far as like the libertarian standard, right? The, the proper role that I just described, there's not, there's not a government on earth that, that reaches that. So they're all criminal organizations to a greater or lesser degree, I think we can say. But the ones that are to a lesser degree tend to have more opportunities for people, less poverty and so on and so forth. So that's all we want. We just want government out of the way and let free people build, right? Let free people build markets, uh, build uh, welfare systems, build whatever. And everybody would be better off and poverty will be reduced. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen through big government programs. And the third thing, the third misconception, which I find totally laughable, is that libertarianism is racist. What? What? What is racist about the belief that everybody should be considered a self-owner of their own bodies? What is racist about a belief that everybody should be considered owners of those scarce resources that they either trade for or appropriate out of unown, unown, an unowned sta status? Right? What is racist about the institution of private property and self-ownership? What is racist about that? Again, a particular libertarian who doesn't want the state interfering in anybody's lives, including their own, violating their property rights and their self-ownership, he may be a racist. But it's not because he believes that everybody's a self-owner and, and deserves uh, property rights. Who knows why he's a racist? It doesn't matter. But it doesn't follow that he's a racist because of those core principles of self-ownership, private property, and its necessary corollary, the non-aggression principle. If he's trying to use government to attack people they don't like because of the because of what race quote unquote race they are, then he is a racist and he's not a libertarian because that is not a libertarian thing to do, obviously. So if you want to protect the racial racially marginalized people of the world, you should be a libertarian. You should reduce the size and scope of government to its proper role of peacekeeping and dispute adjudication. When it goes beyond this, it becomes a tool that can be used by racists to attack the races they dislike. So that's it. Those, those are three negative misconceptions about libertarianism.
that were heartless, that were greedy, that were racist. All three are totally wrong um, as far as our libertarianism is concerned. Now, any one of us may be any one of those things just as people, but that's true for every political ideology, okay? You can find racists in all of them, you can find greedy people in all of them, and you can find heartless people in all of the political ideologies. I think ours, the libertarian ideology, just has a better understanding of what government is and what it can become. That's what separates libertarianism. All right, we are well over my standard 30 minutes, so we're going to end it there. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a second since I've sat down and recorded an episode like this. I've done a lot of conversations with new friends and old friends. And let's see, the last time I sat down, of course, I'm doing my thinking and doing podcast more regularly. I'm doing, excuse me, I'm doing two episodes of this podcast, one episode of that podcast, two and one, two and one, which means this one is slowed down slightly and that one's sped up. Uh, I probably won't go one to one unless I start um, talking about some some other things on that other podcast. You know, if I add some other episode types. Right now, I've just got the three types. I've got uh, fallacy and bias. I've got stoic teachings, and I've got life pro tips, and I just rotate through those type, those episodes. If I expand that, then who knows? I enjoy recording both podcasts. Um, they're both still very uh, agreeable to me, so I'm going to continue doing them. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. And just as important, in my opinion, don't ask permission. Thank you so much for listening again, and have a better day. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everything voluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.